0: We've been studying Brother Lawrence. He's a uh, 15th-century uh, monk, and uh, he had a horrible self-image. Uh, he he really saw himself as uh, as damned. He thought that he could never have a relationship with God. He, his his uh, family life seemed to be rather abusive, and that he had no self-confidence in being able to pull it together, and uh, he thought that he would join the monastery, that that might. Help smack him into shape a little bit, very similar to why people might join the military out of high school, Some to get some of that discipline and some of that training. And uh, he moved into the monastery and was assigned kitchen duty uh, for the rest of his life, actually. So he uh, was the chef, and he couldn't quite grasp all of the theology that he was having to study and all of the books that he was having to read. And uh, he considered himself a real simpleton, so he just kind of thought, "Well, I just can't do any of that stuff. I'm, I'm just going to just going to remember the presence of God all the time." And so he went about doing that and became a saint. <laughs> became a real seer. And uh, they collected at his death uh, a few of his very simple and very straightforward letters. Uh, you will find all of karma yoga contained in his, in his letters and his practice, which came to him spontaneously just because of the presence of God, the presence of the divine. So I'm excited because uh, a couple of weeks ago, a few weeks ago, you might have thought that I did this 20 years ago when I joined the order, but I'm apparently a little bit thicker than Brother Lawrence. Uh, <laughs> and I kind of just had this epiphany about three or four weeks ago, studying it after reading it in class and really getting excited about it because it's such a simple approach such a straightforward approach to spiritual life i thought well, why don't why don't you just do it i mean you're a monk for crying out loud you've got you've got all day to think about it <laughs> you've got a, everybody supports you in your spiritual practice take a risk uh, go out and do this and so I earnestly started uh, trying to do this, just keeping uh, the presence of God in the forefront of my mind uh, throughout my my day, and uh, there have been significant changes and significant breakthroughs, some things that I've been working on in my life for literally, well, not 50 years, probably 45 years, 40, yeah, 45 years. Some of those things finally broke about two weeks ago, and uh, You know, I I thought that if they broke, that that I mean, rainbows and trumpets would sound. um, But we're just pushing on, but in a greater sense of joy, a greater sense of contentment, a greater sense of, of of hope at at the experiences of just pushing ourselves through this life. So to start it, I'm going to read a poem by Hafiz. Something I have learned. Water gets poured through a cloth to become free of impurities. The Beloved's name is a mystical weave and pattern, a a hidden sieve of effulgence that we need to pass through thousands of times. From my constant remembrance of the friend, all I now say is safe to drink, something that I have learned from the kind, radiant one. Who drew me from the unfathomable skies well makes me playful all the day long. There's a there's some beautiful ideas in there that God's name is the cheesecloth, as it were, that we get pressed through. And I like the way he talks about it because he doesn't say that that we pour the name through us, you know, that it runs through us. He understands that your mantra is something that that surrounds you, that your being pushed through. It's not you surrounding your mantra. And that becomes apparent only after you begin to step back from mind. When you get out of the sense of who you are, being your thinking and your thoughts, it's a, it's a, wonderful, it's a wonderful perception to know, to make that distinction as you step back from mind. When you're in mind, you're in the world. You know You're here and the world surrounds you. When you quiet the mind just a little bit and step back and break that deep sense of identity that the mind and is me, you suddenly come to a different perspective, a perspective that you surround the world. So Swamiji says something like, Alameda is in me. You know, Alameda, California, that town. He had this notion, Swamiji was outside of mind. That's why in his writings you always get that sense that he's on, a, on some mountain, and even though he might be talking about some particular tree on some hill there, you always understand that he never forgets the broad picture, the whole scheme of things. And this idea of having ourselves run through the name of God in order to be purified, uh, spending that time with the beloved is key and central to what uh, Brother Lawrence is going to say this morning. So I really didn't know how to organize his thoughts. I did move them around a little bit, but I pretty much just took what he said because they're just so straightforward. So I'm going to read them to you and then we'll chit-chat about them and uh, move forward. One of the things that he said about the beginning when he first started out is a very important point and it's definitely something uh, for us to look at and use. He said, I considered myself completely. I considered myself from head to foot. He just looked at his life, left nothing unturned, to consider where am I? What am I doing? What do I love? What do I want in this world? And he took a close look at it. And I think that that is a great place to start. Uh, You know, sometimes I bemoan the fact, or I have bemoaned the fact, that you know, after years of practice, I, I still have this feeling of not moving, and not changing, and not getting anywhere. And yet I don't make the changes to, to, to break that dam. You know, I've mentioned before that a lot of times we get caught in a cycle. The, the number one complaint I hear from the devotees, from you, the devotees, is that I can't meditate. You know, I can't meditate. I'm in the world. How am I supposed to remember God all the time? You know, it's the same complaint over and over and over again. I never hear about what you're trying to do to break that. I never hear about any experiments that you're undertaking to try and change that situation. And I'm hoping that I'm wrong in assuming that you're just doing the same thing, hoping for a different outcome every day. Because that's, that's pretty close to insanity, they say. <laughs> to do the same thing again and again and hope for a different outcome, but to keep getting that same outcome. And so this looking at our lives, this accounting for ourselves is a very important step Ramakrishna did it every night in tears. I mean, of course, he had that intensity of longing, that intensity of love for God, for the mother, that we're all uh, trying to understand and find within ourselves. But every night, he said, another day has passed in vain. I've wasted another day because I have not realized God. How long, O Ma, will it be? How long until I get to see you? Till I get to understand and experience the fulfillment of the scriptures. And he would do that in tears. Brother Lawrence, he said when he started his journey, that's where he started. That that close introspection. Not one of attachment. Not one you sit there and bemoan who you are. (laughs) Not one where you get caught in identifying yourself as this awful person who can't change and can't aspire. It's not like that. It's just a matter of going through and taking an honest, clear look at your life. And how can you do it? Well, look at your, uh, look at your finances. Start with your finances. Write down, where does my money go? Now, why would I say start with your finances? Because uh, Jesus said, where your treasure is, there lies your heart also. So what are the things you're investing in, in your life? You know, Did the bulk of your money go to material things? How much of it went to to helping people that you knew needed it? You know, how much of it went to service? Uh, How much of it went to to the kids? How much went to college? How much went... Assess where your money is going. That's a good place to start, to figure out exactly where your treasure is and to find out and be challenged if your heart is not in the right place. Now, that's not a disguised request for money. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not saying write a big check and everything will be fine and your heart will be in the right place. That's that's not my point. (laughs) God forbid. But it is, in fact, to take a look and to find out where things are. Then look at your time during your day. You know, probably most of us will spend an hour or so doing our meditation. But how many hours in the day are you spending doing everything else? I had a real shock. I'm not going to share the real numbers with you. But I had a real shock. You know, in, in, in the Apple iPad, they've got this new feature, Screen Time. Mm-hmm. I didn't ask it to do this. <laughs> this is a pure gift for mother for me, where it just sprung up with this notice the other day after it updated, you spent X amount of time per day on your screen last week. Ugh. Yeah. Ugh. Ugh. Uh. Uh. That was unwanted advice, but deeply appreciated information because uh, I realized I spent too much time and it's going to have to significantly reduce. And it, it makes me think, account for your day. Where do you spend your time? You may spend an hour doing meditation, and that's a great thing. But how many hours of worldliness is one hour of meditation countering for you? Is that, could that possibly explain why you're not moving in the direction you want to move? That you've got one hour of God, one hour of meditation, and then you've got 16 hours of uh, you know, Netflix and uh, solitaire and walks around the park and chats with the wife and kids and, you know, or just laying there doing nothing. Whatever, whatever your favorite moments are. Counter that. That's where we begin. Taking an honest look at your life and saying, is it any wonder that we haven't realized God Is it really so hard or is it just that I'm so stubborn or perhaps even a bit stupid (laughs) that I'm not realizing God? Is it perhaps that I have on the top inch of my mind this idea that I'm a devotee and that I'm striving for realization, but when you look at my my day-to-day life, you would have to look really hard to find that mirrored in the way that I live and the things that I do and the things that I say. So challenge yourself, because this is an all-consuming process that we're involved in. There will be nothing left for you at the end, <laughs> and there'll be no you to want it anyway. So there's freedom there, and it's coming your way. How quickly will be up to you. So start today. I encourage you, if we, if we go through lecture after lecture, and there's no difference between the life before the lecture and the life after the lecture, why bother with the lecture? If you come to all of these classes and there's no difference in your life from before the class and after the class, why go to the classes? Right? I mean, and again, the subtle message is not stop coming to classes. (laughs) The subtle message is change your life. Do what you're talking about. Be what you're aspiring to be. Challenge yourself in the areas that are untouched and protected that you don't look at, that you haven't considered. And open that heart up. I mean, pull that old dusty purse open, you know, and let let God rummage through it and decide, I don't think you need that anymore, and I don't think you need that anymore. And pull all that old Kleenex and gum and wrappers out of there and clean you up, set you up for a new a new experience. He says, such was my beginning, and yet I must tell you that for the first ten years I suffered much. The apprehension that I was not devoted to God as I wished to be, that my, my past sin was always present in my mind, and the great unmerited favor is much guided, is, is which guided me or the matter and source of my suffering. So you see that, that, that for the first ten years he wrestled. So we're undertaking here a project that took Brother Lawrence, ten years. So this isn't going to be a thing where you tap on my shoulder next Sunday and say it doesn't work. (laughs) You know, throw that lecture away. It didn't do a thing. This is a ten-year project that you're embarking on today, that I invite you to embark on today. Take some of these suggestions and some of these practices from Brother Lawrence today. Write them down and really make a concerted effort to implement them, even starting this evening, and move on to tomorrow. Because I can tell you, for my last two and a half weeks, it is well worth it. It is well worth it. And you'll be surprised at how far this very simple practice will, will, will inspire you, will take you. But know that you're going to suffer. Now, this is an interesting thing. You suffer to the degree that, you, that you're willing to see clearly. Most of us are living in an ego self, and we like that ego self. You know, we think our personality is pretty funny, You know, as old and wrinkly as our bodies are getting, we still kind of like them. You know, we're still putting on our our glasses and fixing our hair in a particular way and, you know, putting on the deodorant. We're still dressing the thing up, you know, even though it's a hopeless cause. (laughs) It's going downhill. You know, let these things go. See them as you are. Understand, first and foremost, that you haven't realized God because you don't want to. That was a shocking thing for me to have to admit to myself. You know, to sit there in my meditation, because I was complaining to Mother, you know, in the same way that all of us do, why, Ma, haven't you come? Why are you so stingy? You know, how come there's no experience? How come there's no depth of understanding in me? How come, how come, how come? And very clearly the words showed up in my mind, you don't want that. Look at the way you're living. Look at your life. Look at how comfortable you are. Look at how lax you are. I can't meditate. I'll get up and go to my room and read instead. I'm a little bit more tired tonight. I didn't get to bed. I think I'll sleep an extra half hour. It won't hurt anything. (coughs) Little by little, you whittle it away, whittle it away, whittle it away, and make room for this laissez-faire life that we have. And that might seem like it's okay, but it's not okay. I'm going to point out a hard thing to look at. Where are our kids? I've been a part of several Vedanta societies, and all of the kids that grow up coming to the Sunday schools, as soon as they hit college, we never see them again. They'll come to a special puja every now and then, or if mom and dad are in town, they'll come and bring them to the Swami and hope the Swami remembers their name, (laughs) you know, to kind of build up the idea, the illusion they've been coming. Why is that? It's because of our lives. It's because of our lives. Where are our friends? You know, are they asking about our spiritual lives? Are they interested in what they're seeing? What is the opinion of religion out there? It's because of our lives. Are we different? Has love touched the world around us through us? Have we purified our minds, Or do we just joke along with the guys and, the, and girls in the office? You know? Do, do, do we have that impression when we hear and know somebody in the office is not well? Are we there? Do we give them a card, maybe, unsigned even, just maybe a special silent secret card on their desk? I heard you were not well. Just know, I'm hoping you are. You get better. Do we have those kinds of eyes? Because this laissez-faire attitude or laissez-faire approach that we have to spiritual life is affecting the whole world. It's the reason that our kids aren't growing up faithful. It's the reason that religion is in decline. It's it's the reason that even, even those living spiritual lives are failing in very public ways. It's because we've made room for these things. We've made room to be ordinary. We've made room to be normal. But we haven't touched God. We haven't seen that bliss and that divine light. Look in it deeply, you know. When when you bring your family here, what do they hear you talking about with your friends in the library, in the lobby, in the hallway? What are you talking about? What do they hear you saying when you go out to the parking lot? What do they overhear you saying on the phone when you call people up? I, I, I ask these things because I have a lot of contact with kids, and I'm not going to talk about the kids from this congregation. <laughs> but I'll tell you some of the things I've heard. It's like I, somebody just this week I was talking to on the phone, a young a young woman, and she was like, "I don't like to go to the center." She says, "All that, all that my mother talks about is who was wearing what saris, <laughs> and and uh, and and whose whose kid was going to what school, you know, and and." Uh, who, who got into where and who, who's, who's now starting a practice as a, do- as a doctor and, you know, all of these things. It's this subtle competition between families. Your children bear that. They have to live with that. You know, there, I, this, this, this same girl has a best friend, and this best friend wanted to be a journalist. But her father would only pay for her college if she became a doctor. And she was stressing so much about that because she hated it. But she didn't. She felt like she couldn't talk to her father at all. Is that what love looks like? You know, is that what support and compassion looks like? Do you know what your kids want to be? Do you give them that option of becoming something unique? You know, I've been in the order for 20 years I, as a white swami, which is a fun and strange experience at the same time and i hear lots of stories but it took me 15 years in the order <laughs> before i met my first indian devotee that was not a doctor or an engineer 15 years you know 15 years and i wonder where are the architects <laughs> you know where where are the poets where you know where 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 are all these people and I've been told that, it's, that that the people that go into the arts are the people that couldn't become an engineer, <laughs> that couldn't become a doctor. And I thought, oh, really? my gosh, what a stress in life, you know, what a stress in life. Those are the kinds of things that happen when our lives aren't centered on the beloved, when our thoughts, our actions uh, are not in alignment with our words. That's what happens When we start thinking that our honor and the prestige of our family and our name is more important than our children's dreams, our children's ideas of what they want and and are searching for. When those things become more important than our spiritual life. When we hear a challenging thing about service and we feel the tinge, but then we don't do anything about it. We let the tinge go away. We let that strike fall into the background. So we're going to start this adventure with just being honest. No self-hatred, no getting down about it. That's utterly not the point because you sit bathed in grace. You know, There's no need for that. But a matter of knowing where you're starting from, from a place of honesty, so that you look at your life and say, okay, I haven't realized God because I don't want to. What do I want? What are those things that I'm putting my time into And then look at them closely. Why? Why do I want them? What is it in them that I think I'm going to get? And then begins the discernment, that discrimination. Is it giving it to me? Is is it taking me where I want to be? Is my family the way I hoped it would be? Has Has my big house returned that happiness to me? Am I happier now than when I lived in my small house? Take a look at your life and see, is everything just getting bigger and more expensive in your life? And if so, is your happiness increasing and your fulfillment of equal measure? Or is the truth that your happiness has pretty much been a constant, but your cars have gotten bigger and nicer, your refrigerator's gotten bigger, your kitchen's gotten bigger, you've added bedrooms, you've added floors, you've added property, has, has your satisfaction with who you are and what you are increased at the same level? Has your inner peace increased? Has your sense of contentment increased? Or have you found that every move is good for a while and then there's a certain restlessness that sets in? You know, I got to try again. I need something new. The car's getting old. I'll distract myself with redecorating the kitchen again. <laughs> You know, I lived in a monastery in San Francisco, which is, which is the back of our, our backyard, backed onto what's called Billionaires Row in San Francisco, where the cheapest house on those three blocks is like $33 million or something. All right? So I got to look out. It was such an odd thing to be a monk on that block. And to look out my window, I was there at that monastery for 15 years, and I was amazed that the remodeling never stopped never stopped. You know, our our neighbors right next door spent $4 million on their house. Now, in order to sell the house, the neighbors who had moved out completely redid the kitchen with all brand-new solid steel uh, things, refrigerators and ovens and all that, new wood floors and everything. The first thing that the new people did when they moved in was rip out the kitchen. How do I know that? Because they came over and knocked on our door and said, "We've got the stainless steel refrigerator, we've got the stainless steel stove. We're throwing them out. Could you guys use them?" So out in Olima in the barnery, in the barn, they now have the nicest refrigerator they used to, <laughs> the nicest oven that you can imagine. you know It's like And this is the way life is. This is what happens when things get out of balance, when we stop surveying what we are, and we stop measuring ourselves by our ideals and we fall into that complacency of normalcy of the everyday we go to sleep and we hear the incarnations again saying wake up wake up wake up i'm going to share some of the fruits first of what he experienced from this 10 years of practice I found myself changed all at once, and my soul, which till that time was in trouble, felt a profound inward peace, as if she were in her center and her place of rest. Now, it's interesting how he writes it there. He says, I found myself changed all at once. There's no mention of the previous paragraph where it took 10 years for that all at once change to happen. But you see, what he's saying is that it's not necessarily gradual. It's not necessarily you sort of wiggle into this and over time increase. It seems that mother sort of lets it build up, lets it build up like that tension in the rubber band and then boom, she snaps that rubber band and you're like, ooh, (laughs) wow, cool. Here I am. And what does he find? A profound inward peace. He wasn't just like, oh, I was happy. Oh, it was great. I feel good inside. I felt a profound inward peace. A profound peace as if my soul had found her home, had found her place of rest. I have no pain, no difficulty about my state, because I have no will but that of God, which I endeavor to accomplish in all things, and to which I am so resigned that I would not take up a straw from the ground against his order or from any other motive than purely that of love for him. This is where 10 years of practicing the presence of God brought him to a place of profound interior peace, bringing his soul to its home, to where he had no will of his own. He was motivated purely by the love of the beloved. I keep myself by a simple attention and a general fond regard to God, which I may call an actual presence of God, or so to speak better, a habitual silent and secret conversation of the soul with my beloved which often causes me such joy and such rapture inwardly and sometimes outwardly so great that i am forced to use means to moderate them and to prevent their appearance to others there you won't find any more than that paragraph in the whole book <laughs> It says it just like that. It's such a simple thing. But what does he do? I keep myself by a simple attention to God, to the presence of God. Now, at first, you're thinking, okay, the presence of God. What, do I have to like? just imagine that I've got this best friend? Yeah, if that's where you're at, do that. Start there. Make a best friend. Name him God. <laughs> and imagine that he is or her is with you always, everywhere. Don't forget it. And you're like, how am I possibly not going to do that? Well, you're not going to be able to do it. You've got 10 years, but you've got to come up with every possible way you can think of to make it happen. You don't just do it and say, oh, God, I didn't even make it through the day. Ah, well, tomorrow you even forget to try. That's not good enough for spiritual life. That's not acceptable for what we're undertaking here. If it didn't work, then come up with a new means for tomorrow. It can look any number of different ways. You know, write up little like, like I know there was a friend of mine it, when I was working in a, in a cubicle farm at a university, and I worked with 23 women in, uh, in human resources, and I was always astounded at how many pictures of their family they could fit in a cubicle. <laughs> you know I mean, just they were everywhere, and every little trinket that they'd ever been given by their kids was somewhere on that desk. Use that space, use that space. Become that that fanatic. <laughs> put your picture of Taku or Ma or Buddha up there. Put your little statue there with your flowers in front of it. Create your little shrine. Put some scriptures on the wall. You know, if it's if it, if you need to be more subtle than that, then put a picture of Buddha's eye. You know, on the wall. Put something that nobody else in the room will know what it is, but you know that's Thakur's toe. Yeah. <laughs> You know, if, you're, if, you're, if you've got one of those safe workspace environments where you're not allowed to put any religious stuff up, disguise it, you know, disguise it. Make your background, you know, a big corner of the letter OM where it comes up and curls just so you know and you can think about it. Give yourself two outboxes, one for offering it to God first and then you move it from that one to the outbox you know, so that you keep that in mind. I'm giving it to God. Come up with weird things every hour on the hour. Read a scripture. Recite a poem, say a prayer, do 10 japa, you know, do, do one japa, I mean, anything. Just come up with a system. If you were forgetful today, tonight when you lay down, go to bed and say, why was I forgetful? Why didn't that work today? Oh, because I got caught up. What can I do to interject something in my schedule that will not let that happen? Have your iPhone chirp the name of God every 15 minutes. do something that's my point think about it if it's not working and you're forgetting stop accepting that about yourself stop thinking that's okay stop settling back for nothing step forward and come up with creative and engineering ways to find your beloved to touch that space to save all of us if one of you realize God, can you imagine the profound effect it would have on everybody here? If any of us do it, you know, at the end of every of when 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 it's when it's my turn to do the puja, and I assume everybody does. I think I think the puja is generally the same, but that last thing where you put that little drop of water in your hand and you're like, I offer this worship to you on behalf of the devotees here, and then in my instructions it says earnestly ask God for his realization at that same time, for, for seeing him, for knowing him. So every day when I do the puja here, that prayer goes up for each one of us. And I always tell him, I'm like, Dakur, anybody, anyone, anybody, please give somebody this gift, this insight. We are all so thirsty for it. We are all so hungry for it. Be that person that he looks around to think, oh, which one should I give it to? He's been asking this every day for five years. Who should we do it for? Be that person where he says, oh, look, they've got their basket tightly woven. They can hold the gift. It won't run out and be wasted. It will stay with them, and he'll pour it in there for you. I keep myself by a simple attention and a general fond regard to God. Now, this one really struck me because how many times do I sit there doing my job hours? 100, 200. But he, he made an effort to generate a fond regard. Each time he said that name, he attached it to the heart. He made a space that was sweet for the beloved to come and be. He wasn't just trying to earn something, trying to get something done, trying to meet a, meet a record or meet a, a, a quota. He was trying to create a kind environment for the Beloved, a general happy regard for the name, for the presence of the Beloved in the heart. So each time he said the name, he realized and remembered it's not the name. It is God herself. It is, in fact, the Beloved that is being called with each one of those names. And he created a general space of warmth toward that, and he didn't let it end. A general fond regard to God, which I may call an actual presence, or to say it better, a habitual, silent, and secret conversation of the soul with my beloved. Doesn't that sound amazingly sweet? A secret and silent, habitual, secret conversation with the soul, of the soul with God, which often causes me such joy and such rapture inwardly and sometimes also outwardly, so great that I am forced to use means to moderate them, to prevent their appearance to others. Is that not what we're looking for? Is that not what we're hoping for? He found it. Very simple practice. If you want it, and that's the question, you can have it. The king, full of mercy and goodness, very far from chastising me, because remember his reason for suffering was that he just felt like he was so presumptuous to even undertake this. And who doesn't feel that way? Good Lord, when I took the, my son <laughs> When I took my sannyas vows, and I had to spend those 10 days reading and chanting those, uh, those Upanishads about sannyas and the ideal, I was terrified. I, was, I remember going and laying on Brahmananda's shrine on the floor the day before the vows and just saying, Oh, wow. <laughs> I know this is blasphemy for me to do this, to tr- even try <laughs> to take this. You know, I laid there before the beloved and I said, look, you, you've seen me through and through. You see how utterly unprepared I am. How utterly lost I've been. What a crazy life that I've led. And now to be exposed to this ideal and to make a vow to it That's what we're up against. That's what we sit in front of when we look at Takur. Perfection. Someone who never had a selfish thought. Someone who never cared less for you than they did for themselves. Someone who was never willing to hold anything back for you. That's the ideal that we sit in front of. And so a lot of times we imagine that God withdraws. We think that, that God isn't in our life because we're so impure. He's withdrawn. He's withdrawn absolutely wrong. You withdrew. God is always present and always perfect. If you can't think of him, it's because you don't want to think of him. If you can't remember him, it's because you're not trying hard enough to remember him. But he says here, that very far from chastising me. Because, right, don't we feel that way? Oh, God. Sometimes I laugh, you know, and think that mother's first thing she'll do is smack me upside my head, you know, when we get there. He says, the king full of mercy and goodness, very far from chastising me, embraces me with love, makes me eat at his table, serves me with his own hands, gives me the key to his treasures, He converses and delights himself with me incessantly in a thousand and a thousand ways and treats me with all respects and calls me his favorite. It is that I consider myself from time to time in his holy presence. Do you see this? The way that God will just pour out to you if you make this effort. If you reach out, make a dedicated effort, an earnest and sincere effort to know the beloved. This is from experience. This is a simple monk who worked in the kitchen. Who's saying that this is how God treated him when he made this dedication, this effort of life. That God embraces you with love. That's a wonderful thing. I told the story once before but it's one of my favorite memories about love. The first time my mother came to visit me in college, I'd been gone for like 3 months, my first time 3 months away from home, and my mother and father surprised me for a weekend. And I remember coming back from class and opening the door to the to the dorm hall that I was on and my mother was at the other end. <laughs> I'm so sappy. I totally I just threw my bag, my backpack and books down on the ground. And I just hauled myself all the way down that hall. and Just about threw her out the window as I hugged her. And just the feel of my mom's hair on my cheek. And the smell of my mom. And the feel of that hug. Oh my God, that is love. That's why I'm a monk. God can only replace that with a greater thing. God and God alone embraces you with that kind of love. That's what you're resisting. That's what you're forgetting. That's what you're not being mindful of. It is not worth it for whatever you're replacing the thought of God with. It is not worth it. He makes me eat at his table and serves me with his own hands. I remember the nuns at Shardamot when I first took my initiation there. I had five grandmothers that day. Five grandmothers. They took me to the kitchen because they didn't realize I had not had lunch. And five grandmothers feeding me all of these delicious, incredible foods and being so happy, just tittering away when I would say that I liked something. They just and go and get more. This is the beloved making you eat at his table, serving you with his own hands, giving you the key to his treasures. He converses and delights himself with me incessantly in a thousand and a thousand ways. Now this is very interesting He's not saying, I delight and converse with him in a thousand and a thousand ways. This relationship matures into something very profound and something very real and something very deep and something very, very true. It is God who will converse with you, who will come up with a thousand and a thousand ways of expressing love and inspire you. That's what makes a saint, A saint doesn't accomplish sainthood. Sainthood is a response to being loved and knowing it. To being deeply cherished and never forgetting it. For being utterly forgiven and covered in grace and never losing sight of it. That's what makes a saint. That's what makes a holy man. Not practice and attainment and grrr. No, it's opening. It's putting yourself in the presence of the beloved, trusting, believing, and knowing. Sometimes I consider myself there as a stone before a carver, where he is to make a statue, presenting myself thus before God. I desire him to form his perfect image in my soul and make me entirely like himself. It's a very, it's again, he's again has reversed the focus. It's not that we go into our meditation, we come here in the shrine, and we're like, okay, I'm going to do 220 jumpas, you know, or I'm going to sit here for an hour and 15 minutes, or I'm going to accomplish this, I'm going to do that. No, that's us doing, that's ego actuating, that's us taking control. That's why we can't see the beloved, because we are putting ourselves in the way putting this ego in there to block it. He says, I consider myself as a stone before the carver. What does a stone do before the carver? Absolutely nothing. (laughs) But be available. No reservations, no distractions, no defenses, no forgetfulness. You're there with a fond regard for your beloved in the presence of the name which is echoing in the mind, and you are just available, open. You're not holding on to your shortcomings. You're not thinking of all the reasons you're impure and that you can't do this and that it can't happen. You are readily making yourself available. Turn me into you. Make this beautiful. Make this a refuge for everyone. Make me a tree that can give shade. And you just sit there in the presence, being transformed. Because that love coming to you, that love that will become audible to your soul in that quiet, will be infinitely inspiring to you, will be infinitely precious to you. And there will come a time where you can't believe how much of life was wasted by forgetting. He said it was impossible not only that God would deceive but also that he should longer let a soul suffer, which is perfectly resigned to him, and resolve to endure everything for his sake. He's talking about faith here, and faith is everything. Talker says that there's two things that are everything. One, he says everything is mind. And the second thing he says faith is everything in the gospel. Two things. And I thought, what's the relationship between faith and mind if these two things are everything? Your faith creates your mind. If you sit there before the beloved with absolute faith that there is nothing against you, that there is no impurity in you, not because of anything that can be checked off, but because of grace, because of grace. You know, I always think of Cinderella. (laughs) You know that story, Cinderella? She's dressed in tatters, you know, just completely unkempt, and she gets to go to this ball, Right? She gets to go to this ball, a royal ball, where the prince is there. Talk about out of your water. You know, talking about nervous, like, what do I say? How do I walk? Well, how do I dance? How do I, who do I talk to? What are the rules? She could have been completely overwhelmed, but she's given a dress, she's given a ticket, she's given a carriage, and she goes to this ball, and she's marvelous because it was all given to her. It was all a gift to her. She accepted it full-heartedly, went and became a princess for the night. That's your invitation, as Disney as that is, that's your invitation every time you sit down to meditate. Accept the gift. You are free. You are blissful. You are pure. You are holy. There is in you a bird which is already realized. Let that shine. Let that shine. And every whisper of protection inside that you feel, when you feel it, lay it down. You're a stone before the carver. You're being changed. You're being renewed. You're being lifted up. You're being restored to your highest ideal. Accept the gift. Stop trying to earn it. Stop trying to fix things. Stop trying to struggle and make it happen on your own. Present yourself utterly, purely, and completely to the beloved, holding up nothing of your own, understanding what an utter insult that is in the face of divine love. There is nothing necessary but to open and understand that love. And your first glimpse of that, you will never again forget it. Your first glimpse, you will never forget again. He told me that it all consists in one hearty renunciation of everything which we are sensible does not lead to God. That we might accustom ourselves to a continual conversation with him, with freedom and in simplicity that we need only recognize God intimately present with us to address ourselves to him in every moment that we may beg his assistance for knowing his will in things doubtful, for rightly performing those which we plainly see that he requires of us, and for offering to him before we do them and giving him thanks for them when we have done them. There's his recipe. Now, he's not talking in hyperbole. This is his practice. This is his practice. He told me, it all consists in one hearty renunciation of everything that does not lead to God. Quit everything that does not lead to God. Now, does that mean that all of us have to become whatever's? No. No. He goes on to say down here, that, uh, that our sanctification does not depend upon our changing our work, but in doing that work for God's sake, which we commonly do for our own. It's just a switch of attitude. Stop doing everything for yourself. Stop going to work for yourself. Stop doing the things that you do at work for yourself. Stop all of that And put the beloved in there and do everything for the sake of love. Do everything for the sake of of the most glorious ideal you can imagine. Pure, unconditioned love. Make your life a response to your recognizing the presence of God. That's what he said there, that we need only to recognize God intimately present with us. It's a recognition of something that is already real. The presence of your beloved. You have never seen anything else. I love throwing the little pieces that, you, that we've learned along the way. That light is love. Remember Eckhart Tolle said that he saw that light was love? What a marvelous meditation that is. To sit in the sun or to sit in a brightly lit room and just imagine and try and understand. To recognize God's intimate presence with you by seeing that light is not just light you've been wrong to think that that light is love and look at it that from that perspective and you see light feeding all of life because of light we eat because of light we live recognize that refresh your mind Put out the old dusty idea that light is just this wave coming from the sun that just is there on a good day. And understand light is the love of your beloved surrounding you, providing you with food and that warmth and that gentleness and that brightness and that clarity. Light is love. Sit there in that comfortable chair in that living room. We have some of the most comfortable chairs in the world, at least to me. You sit back in that thing, that chair is the beloved. That chair is holding you off the ground <laughs> in the nicest of ways. Close your eyes and settle yourself back into the arms of your beloved. Let these imaginations take hold of you. You know, I know in my office when I in my office days, they would spend great deals of money on our chairs. I never thought about those chairs. Think about your chair. <laughs> See it as the arms of the beloved. Imagine yourself when you sit down first thing in the morning when you sit down in the chair. Imagine that you're sitting in the lap of the beloved, that that embrace, that comfort is from God. These are ways that you can wake up, ways that you can begin to see the wonder of the world that you forgot as a child, that got beaten out of you at some point. Without being discouraged on account of our sins, we should pray for his grace with a perfect confidence. A perfect confidence. How many times do you need to pray for something? Once. If you pray for it twice, you didn't have any faith. you pray for a third time, you didn't have any understanding. you pray a fourth time, don't bother. (laughs) Pray and ask for the beloved grace of God with perfect confidence. Don't ever walk into the face of the beloved in shame. That's to be faithless. That's not to have perfect confidence in this gift that is coming to you. that the most excellent method that I have found for going to God was that of our doing our common business with without any view of pleasing men and as far as we are capable purely for the love of God, that it was a great delusion to think that the times of prayer ought to differ from other times, but that this prayer is nothing else but a sense of the presence of God. My soul being at that time insensible to everything but divine love. That we ought not to be weary of doing little things for the love of God, who regards not the greatness of the work, but the love with which it is performed. That's a beautiful statement. That's a beautiful statement, because so many of us, we spend so much of our lives trying to attain greatness, trying to become greatness. It's not good enough to be a clerk. No, I have to be the CEO. It's not good enough to sing a song. I want the audience for me. You know, It's like we all want this greatness, these big things, and it causes this restlessness in us, this sense of striving, this sense of need, this sense of stress. If we could but just understand this here, that God does not consider the greatness of your work, but the love by which it is done. Change your attitude of the way that you work. Stop thinking of yourself and do it through inspiration and not for achievement. Do it because you're called and not because you're driven. Do it because you have the gift in hand, not so that you can earn it. Be with your beloved. Have a perfect confidence that God is everywhere present and always perfect. Keep it in your mind, and it will manifest in your reality. This world is mind. Faith is everything. What you put in the mind manifests in this world. I've said that so many times. I've pointed to this building so many times. This building is someone's imagination manifested. Make your spiritual life, your imagination, manifested your acceptance, your perfect confidence that God is with you at every moment and live in that space. Now, I wanted to go about how to create a habit. (laughs) There's so much in here, actually, that I wanted to go over that I didn't get to. But he says here, he says, when he had finished, he examined himself again. So he would sit there before he would do something. He would tell God, let's see if I can find this place, that when he began his business, this is being written about Brother Lawrence, that when he began his business, he said to God with a filial trust in him. Now filial means like being of a son and daughter. So he had trust in God as his family, as his his own mother, as his own father. When he began his business, he would say to God with a filial trust in him, Oh my God, since you're with me, and now, in obedience to your commands, I have to apply my mind to these outward things. I beg you, grant me the grace to continue in your presence. And to this end, please give me your assistance. Receive all of my work and possess my affection. So every undertaking that he took, he set his mind Okay, God, I have to do this thing. I have to go to work. I have to take care of the kids. I have to feed my husband. I have to do X, Y, and Z. Please, as I'm doing this, don't don't let me abandon you. Don't let me forget you. And when he had finished, he examined himself. Did it work? Did I stay with you? Was I there? He was never hasty nor loitering but did each thing in its season with an even, uninterrupted composure and tranquility of spirit. The time of business, said he, does not with me differ from the time of prayer. And in the noise and the clutter of my kitchen, while several people are all at the same time calling to me for different things, I possess God in as great a tranquility as if I were upon my knees at the blessed sacrament. So even in the midst of his busy kitchen, you've seen commercial kitchens, people yelling for things from every side, needing things from every side, needing more of this, less of that, redo this. He says, in the midst of that, inwardly, I was in the shrine in a perfect sense of even calmness. Now, where, does that, where do we get that from? It's from the Gita, right? A person who has let go of all personal desires and is utterly content in the truth of Atman, the true self, is the one of steady wisdom. A person undisturbed by difficulty, who doesn't yearn to be happy, who has no favorites, no fear, and no anger, is a sage of steady wisdom. Whoever is free of all mental attachment, who is not excited when good things happen, nor dejected when evil comes, he is a man poised in wisdom. When one can withdraw the senses from sense objects, like a tortoise draws within, his wisdom is unwavering. You see... He became that without even knowing that, simply by remaining in the presence of the beloved. And that has been the startling thing to me in the last three weeks. Not that I'm having any great star-falling experiences like that. It's just this general fondness has put a a sweet mood in me where I haven't gotten caught up in the day-to-day by all the little itchy things that, that my ego likes to get annoyed at that this constant presence of the beloved has lifted the mood, has lifted my eyes off of the things that normally bother me and put in me a sense of grace because I'm feeling grace, because I'm becoming aware of what love there is and how deep that love goes. Because at first, somebody says unconditioned love. Well, unconditioned love, we have no idea what that is. We just have a little box in the mind, oh, unconditioned love. But when you start putting yourself in the presence of unconditioned love, And start opening the heart to the experience of what that means to you, it gets bigger and bigger and brighter and warmer and more consuming and more far reaching. And you find that everything begins to change because of the presence of God. Because how much of my laziness is because I've forgotten God? How much of my impurity is because I've forgotten God? How much of my inability to do the things I want to do is because I have forgotten my beloved and I feel no sense of responsibility and no sense of urgency in myself. When you place the beloved in the mind and do not let him go, do not let him go, do not let him go, everything else about you will change because you cannot resist. You cannot hold on to the trinkets when you're standing on the mountain of gold. You can't. You cannot do it. The only thing you need to do is remember. You are always in the presence of love. You always have access to an infinite well within you to love, to give. You are already that divine light that you've always dreamed of, that you've always hoped for. Accept that gift and lay down all of the silly things that you're clutching to that prevent you from having room to hold it. That is the presence of the beloved. That's the practice of the presence of God. That's the invitation today to be different simply by remembering and holding on to this truth and this light in our beloved.